I'm Nick, executive pastor here, part of the teaching team, and uh, like I said before, it's, it's just good to walk through the book of Mark, uh, to step in as we begin this study. Last week, Jesse kicked that off for us, and as we look at Mark, titled, Who is this Jesus? I hope that whether it's your first time or you've kind of like that lifetime attendance award, um, wherever you find yourself, that we're able to come and not just have preconceived labels in mind, pre-assigned labels of how we view Jesus. Because what's easy to do, what's easy, easily happens in our life is that we watch something, there's a late night comedy sketch, there's a, there's a movie, there's a newspaper, there's a, somebody said something that was misquoted somewhere, and we pick up these little labels and titles that we associate with Jesus but they come from all various sources with varying levels of authority. And, and so suddenly we have all this, this baggage in our head of what we think about Jesus and we come and, and we wonder, who is this Jesus? So my hope is that as we dive into scripture and walk through this book that we continue to come back to scripture and look at who, who is he? Who, who is he? Who, who does he say he is? What is the confidence that's raised as we, as we walk through scripture? And one of the reasons that I think there's a challenge around that is because even people, as they come to Scripture, they question, can I trust what I'm reading? How, how do I trust that? And so I want to take just a moment to address a little bit of that, as Jesse did a little bit last week as we look at the confidence of Scripture. And so we're going to be looking at the book of Mark. Mark is, is one of four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all wrote early after the time of Jesus. The book of Mark was probably written in the AD 60s. I mean, plus or minus, you can, different people say exactly. But right around that time. Now, the fascinating thing is if, if you go back to that time in history when the Gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that if it really was in the AD 60s, and that's the time when these, these letters are penned and when these are written, you actually have them starting to circulate at that time. And what happens is the people that are alive would have been around at the events of Jesus' life. So if those details were inaccurate, it would have easily been traceable. And, and that's why even in other letters, they say, go ask the people about this. Or when Mark will reference specific people, you could probably go find that person alive or somebody that knew that person to double check. So what happens is early, early on in the first couple of centuries, what you see is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are widely distributed all over the Mediterranean region. They're widely accepted as the actual events of what took place in Jesus' life. You have other people that would say, well, what about like Gospel of Judas or Thomas or all these other ones? Well, they were written much later and they were often just in one small region, kind of like a popular you know, biography, kind of a, a fictional work that would have been a sketch based on some kind of poetic reason. But it was only in a small region, wasn't region-wide. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were region-wide all over the Mediterranean. So when we open up our scripture day, we're going not on some random interpretation from the 11th century, but we go all the way back early, 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 and there's hundreds of manuscripts that we're pulling from, so the accuracy of what we then open up in English and read is tremendous. This is what happened, and we can know that because of the confidence we find here as we step into scripture. Now, that if, uh, if you enjoy that type of stuff, I, uh, you can talk with me in the lobby because I've got a lot more to share there. But I, I'm fascinated by a confidence that we can have in the scripture we read because it's so easy to just undermine quickly. Oh, we can't trust it. Really? C.E. Hill wrote a book titled, Who, Who Chose the Gospels? Excellent resource. If you like footnotes, it's got a lot of them. But it's in English. There's no ancient languages, too many of them in there. So it's just an awesome resource in that whole area if that's an interest of yours. All of that to say that as we turn here in a moment to Mark chapter 2, 
we come with confidence to we see an encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And as we walk through this chapter and into chapter three, here's, here's the, the pressure point, here's the tension I think that we're gonna experience as we, as we get into this spot. Here's what's raised, is that religious people tend to focus on rules over relationship, guilt over grace. And what you're gonna see in this section is that the Pharisees focused on specific rules about observing the Sabbath rather than what the Sabbath was established to do in the first place. Because religious people tend to focus on rules rather than the heart devotion. They tend to focus on guilt rather than grace. You want to see Jesus come in conflict with that and, and address that directly with the Pharisees. And we have this same behavior pop up all around us today. And by the end of the time, you're probably going to be asking, so what do I do with the Sabbath? How do I do that? I mean, we just naturally go, well, how do I do this specifically? Or we get down to the details of what are the rules behind it? We so easily can slip into Pharisee behavior today. So we want to be cautious as that we walk through this passage. So open Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, I'll start in verse 23. says this, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why, do you, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they not doing what's lawful on the Sabbath? Now, they don't, the Pharisees don't directly address the disciples who are doing it. They look to Jesus, the one in authority in that group, and question him. So what's, what's the Sabbath? We've heard this term before if you've been around for a while, but the Sabbath is a very important Jewish tradition. It comes out of, uh, comes out of the Ten Commandments. So it's foundational in the early laws of the nation of Israel as God relates with his people about how they're to behave. It's, it's the fourth commandment. So I'm gonna read Exodus 20, the very words that establish the foundation of the Sabbath. It says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Makes that point very clear. Verse 11, it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the word Sabbath throughout the Bible designates that seventh day of rest. There are six days of effort and labor and put in the time and clock in, clock out, and then rest. And the example given to us is creation itself. And so God, in, in divine creation sovereignty, speaks the world into being, and his effort takes six days in the way he organizes creation, and then he rests. Is it because he was exhausted and God wore out? No, the, the point of the passage is that, that here we are seeing God intentionally labor six days and rest on a seventh. And then as we image him, as we are in humans following his example, we are given a gift from our creator to realize we need in the weave and rhythm of our weeks rest. And so the Sabbath is a spot for rest, for joy, refreshment. We follow both the example of our Heavenly Father, but then also are told to do this, to apply this. Now, this happens in, here in Exodus 20. The significant thing about where it lands in Exodus 20 is, remember, it didn't start with this rules follow the Sabbath, but in this spot, God had already been relating to his people for hundreds of years before any kind of 
rule or regulation came into place. So it's helpful to remember, even in that spot, there's all this relational before the Ten Commandments land. But then, think with me here, let's just, let's just assume the best, okay? So you've got this Ten Commandments, and it says, Sabbath rest, keep it holy. What happens a couple of weeks later? You ask somebody to do something on the Sabbath, smart little kid, can't work, mom, sorry. How many of you think that loophole would come up pretty quick, right? I mean, come on. It probably is not just the kid. It's probably, I'm sorry. I mean, how does this work with little kids running around, right? Like, you got to do something. So I think out of an initially a good heart, you very early see rules and explanations start to develop around the Sabbath. And because people were wanting to honor what God had put in the Ten Commandments, this is significant. So, so let's start building in some clarity so we actually honor what God wants us to do in the Ten Commandments. Honor the Sabbath. They keep, let's not work on that day. But pretty soon, these laws and these regulations get bigger and bigger and more complicated. And so by the time we land in Jesus's time, it is this massive religious code that the Pharisees have developed. And so that even simple acts of picking grain in a field become violation of the Sabbath, and you're breaking God's law. So let me read just a few others that, that would have been considered violation of the Sabbath in the first century when, um, when Jesus was walking around with the Pharisees. You could pour cold water onto hot water, but not hot water onto cold water. I don't know why. So you could not boil an egg, not even by placing it in the hot sand. Has anybody done that? I don't know anybody yet. Are you in a car hood? Yeah. So you can't do that. You cannot bathe. The water falling off you might inadvertently wash the floor, which would be considered work. So you could not blow out candles and you cannot light candles. This is my favorite. You could not examine your clothing. Here's why. You might have found a small bug and killed it, thereby violating the Sabbath. And on and on and on. And hundreds of rules that at some point had some justifiable reason to avoid some loophole. But at some point, this is the spiritual condition that Jesus steps into. People hungry for spiritual refreshment. And yet, religious leaders that have suffocated people by their religious regulations and rules. The layered guilt upon guilt upon guilt. And Jesus steps into this environment. And the Sabbath is our specific issue in this spot. So look what, look what he continues on with. So he responds in verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also he gave to those who were with him. Have you never read what David did? And I love that Jesus replies, not directly, but in reference to scripture which actually is a, is a good example of how we're to be using Scripture today. As, as we read through and study, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and we see parallels with today, to go, how do we find the principles and use those interpretive hermeneutics to understand what's said so we can apply it into our life today? It applies. In a similar way, Jesus, looking back in Scripture, sees David, who had authority over his men, understood the law at the time in a way it was being misapplied by those priests. So he acted with authority and took food. And here, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees 
are saying. In a similar way, you've misunderstood the purpose of the Sabbath. And so he goes on and responds with this. Verse 27, and Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here, Jesus speaks with authority. He's saying, you have narrowly focused on the Sabbath. But Jesus said, no, there's a broader intent here. You've convoluted the original meaning around it with all these fancy regulations that it's no longer about what it was meant to be. And so the Sabbath was never something that we were supposed to be servants to, but it was made for us. Remember that creation intent of the joy and refreshment that God wove into creation as we acknowledge him on a day set aside during the week. Have we forgotten that? Jesus points to this here. Sabbath was made for man. And even Jesus, Lord of all of it, now speaks into it with authority. Now, the thing, that, the thing that's so clear here, I think that's even bigger than observing the Sabbath. I mean, Sabbath is the example the Pharisees are using, but even bigger than that is that heart devotion to God, heart devotion to Jesus is far more effective than guilt to motivate change. You see, the Pharisees had landed on these rules, regulations, and guilt and legalism to try to manipulate a change to have people follow God ineffective. Jesus is pointing back to go, no, 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 the heart change, the heart devotion to God, that's what we want. Pharisees were stuck on a legalistic, guilt-laden system. Now, we know that this dichotomy is is true, that it's easier for heart motivation rather than guilt motivation, that's more effective. I mean, just think about it in our our daily daily lives, right, with with relatives. Have have you ever had a a relative where they kind of they guilt you into coming back. Maybe I've seen them in a long time and as you're leaving, it's one of those, hope I see you again sometime before next year or in the next five years. Or there's some guilt laced in there that is just like, oh, did you have to? It's a little bit like, yeah. And that, that kind of motivates a little bit, but it's kind of guilty and weird. Or, or we have Valentine's Day. I think of all the different relationships and how Valentine's Day, it's impossible to get a restaurant, right, you know, Reservation, flowers cost 10 times as much and because you're just banking on the fact that people are gonna feel guilty and spend all that money to make up for something. And then we feel like, you know, all these wonderful posts about, I love you every day like it's Valentine's Day. And then it's, oh, how do I post like that? And well, you cut and paste in somebody else's, now it doesn't count. You need to be spontaneous, but I always forget. So I got a plan to be spontaneous. Ah, so then I feel guilty trying to love and show appreciation to my spouse because I probably should have done it somewhere else and should have been more heartfelt. I'm not a romantic, but I try this. And suddenly we're like, we get lost in all these guilt rules. And it's just, no, it's, there's a heart devotion that just motivates a change differently. And this came up just in a, in a sort of funny way that I appreciate with my wife that she doesn't fall into that trap of guilting. But there was about a year ago uh, where I was, you know, I hadn't done the dishes in a while. It's probably more, more recently even than a year ago. But a specific instant a year ago. Uh, <laughs> let's just, just be honest there. But a year ago, she just asked, kind of, hey, could you do the dishes? Yeah, sure, yeah. No, nothing, like, no guilt, no nothing. So I just, I do it, you know, and I wash the dishes. And that happened a couple of different nights in a row. But then, it almost made it worse. And she didn't say anything to me. Super sweet, totally nice. But each night, I had left out just a couple of dishes, unwashed. You know, at the end of a few days, she's like, oh, why don't you just wash all the dishes? <laughs> and like just trying to, she said very calmly, very nicely, just trying to understand more. Like, I'm not trying to guilt you, just 
why don't you just wash them all? So my perfectly reasoned response was, well, when I'm washing the dishes, I don't like it when my fingers get wrinkly, so I stop. <laughs> so, that wasn't supposed to be funny. That's what I mean. <laughs> you guys don't mind wrinkles? <laughs> like, no. And so, so at that moment, it's one of those, do I, do I love you more? Do I punch you? Do I, like, it's that mix of emotion, right? And, but sometimes in our relationships like that, we can expect things of others. We can build in rules. We can build layering guilt. I've been doing this all day. You should do this. You know, I've been with the kids all day. You need to be with them. Or I've been working all day and you need to do this. And the last time I went to your place, we did it. Guilt can layer itself in so many different ways that we realize it motivates for a short term, but it's not, it's not healthy long term. Not at all. And we see this not just in relationships we know, whether it's going to work and being part of an organization that connects you well to the vision and impact of that organization. You'll want to work harder and show up and, and put in for your team. If you're at the edge of feeling like you're going to get fired or a misstep, it probably there's a different motivation there. It comes true in church as well. As we think about a room this size, people have been coming on a regular basis. If you've been around church for a while, you start to realize, oh yeah, I should probably read through scripture, serve. And then serving can throw itself in a couple different directions. It can be guilt-motivated. Oh, boy, I really don't like kids, but I should probably go help with that basketball thing that's important. <laughs> and so I start doing it, and it, you know, it just motivates a little bit. Or, or how much different is it when our heart is captured to go, yeah, I could care less about basketball, but we have literally hundreds of people coming every single week into this facility who know nothing about Jesus Christ, who are interested in sports and athletics, happen to realize, oh, there's a, you talk about Jesus with a church, that's fine, you're nice people. Awesome. <laughs> Let's show up and serve and be present and share the gospel and invite people and create an environment that is so winsome. They go, I want to be here in this place that there's a hope of the gospel that's shared. Be so clear about who Jesus is that it translates to a Sunday. So when you show up on a Sunday early to help with everything from the, the preschool and the earliest young kids that realizing that many of us as adults, we drop off our treasures and hand those over in the nursery, the most important ministry in the entire church. That when that spot is shining with smiley faces and people that get it, Suddenly, this room can happen, and people are being prayed over and cared for and loved and pointed to Jesus, not just here, but in an entire facility. And that happens day after day after day, person after person after person, and a heart is captured for service, not guilt-motivated into it. And probably need to put in my membership fees, and that tithing thing is coming again, so probably should pay in for a little bit, you know. When our heart is captured what God is doing, we realize when we build the church and we invest financially into what's happening, People around the world are impacted. Our community is changed. When you connect heart rather than just guilt, it changes everything. We see that all over the place. The Pharisees missed that. Sabbath had not become a refreshment joy. It had become regulation after regulation, and I'm probably just going to fail, so I'll figure out how to buy another sacrifice to make up for this. And the system was suffocating people. I think as we step into this next section, this whole area, I'm just fully convinced that I would desire that our devotion to Jesus, rather than the rules we follow, is what mark us. Because those will follow, but our devotion to Jesus is primary. Let's, let's look at chapter three. What, what happens to this next encounter? It's another Sabbath day setting. 
chapter three, verse one, it says, again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So picture this. Again, it's a room probably smaller than this one. No cool Spotify playlist, I mean, making the music going and everything. It's just quiet. So you can clearly see the different people in the space. It doesn't say about any other people gathered. There could have been other people here on a, on a Sabbath day. wouldn't have been uncommon for a number of people. But you clearly would have been able to see the groups of people identified here. You would have seen a man with a withered hand. We don't know whether that was from birth or a later accident, but clearly he's called out recognizable in that space. If Jesus, most likely with his disciples there who would have been recognized, so we'll note he's observing the Sabbath, so we'll talk about that later too. But he's there, and the Pharisees are there. The Pharisees, I don't think they're even trying to hide anything. They're probably just awkwardly staring. And I think part of the reason is because they're not so much, don't think like, um, KGV, don't think like operatives ready to enforce instantly. Think more like creepy paparazzi want to be the first to know, combined with, combined with, there's some wealth, political influence. There's a social system around the religious festivals that they have control of because of some of the regulations that have been put in place. So they do hold sway. Now, they're not primarily political. They're not not a paparazzi, but they, they just want to be in the know of things because they've been watching Jesus and realize that this, the system that they have in place that's worked for them, that's allowed them to be in power, may just be crumbling in front of them because of this person, Jesus, the one who is just different, who heals, who speaks with authority, who handles issues like they haven't heard before. So they're keeping their eye on him, making sure that this guy gets in line. So, verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said, turning to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. But they were silent. I think in an incredible way, with his just pointed question, Jesus pushes right back to the intent of the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. Highlights that again, right front and center. Now, the interesting thing is, I'm sure Jesse will highlight some of this through Mark. You'll see different questions pop up in the letter. In chapter 12, in fact, it says they actually stopped asking Jesus questions. They just lob up softballs. Let's just stop it. Don't ask him anymore. Because questions have a way of just getting at the heart of something and surfacing intention and assumptions and all those things, and, and Jesus just asks the question. So look, look what happens. Verse five, and Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Like, incredible healing, miracle, destroy that man. Okay, there's a, there's a total miss of what's happening, which is why I think in verse five, Jesus is angry and grieved at his heart. They can't even see what's right in front of them. They're so stuck in a legalistic system of everything, they totally forgot a, a devotion to God that was supposed to be at the foundation of it all. 
And so here, verse six in chapter three, I believe is actually kind of the culmination of going all the way back to the beginning of chapter two. There's five different instances of different encounters, and it all burst here in this book. They just have to stop this guy. And so they go out and they, they get together the Herodians, who was a, a Jewish political party that sympathized with the rulers of the Herodian dynasty. So they were sympathizers with Rome. It was primarily a political party, but it also had some religious interest in this region at the time. And so it aligned with the Pharisees to stop Jesus. And you only see the Herodians pop up a few times. But that's, that's who they were. And as I watch this interaction at the end here, what I hope for us and what I think we just have to be cautious of is that, that we, can, we can miss Jesus, I really believe this, we can miss Jesus while we're pursuing the things we think he's asked of us. Careful, the point of the Sabbath as God gave it here was twisted by the Pharisees, so much so that it was nearly unrecognizable. And we can easily do the same thing. We can land guilt on people into thinking that we're pursuing Jesus. But we aren't. It's legalistic, Pharisaic, and it's guilt. It's wrong. Be careful in our pursuit of Jesus. We don't inadvertently miss him doing things we think, we think he's asked us to, us to do. Because heart devotion to Jesus is far more effective than guilt or legalism to motivate change. Guilt never results in lasting change. Guilt instead turns in false faces and deception and lying. Guilt is not synonymous with like freedom, joy, passion, life. Guilt squelches those things. And instead, it's a heart devotion that what Jesus seeks. It's a heart devotion what God has always sought. And it goes all the way back, and I could pull any number of scriptures on it, but I just love the words of Ezekiel 36, 26. Reminds us of this necessity of a soft heart. And verse 26 says, And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. Catch the order. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's a soft heart. A heart change is real change. And real change actually does have visible results. We see that. So devotion to Jesus, as we look at this passage here, I think pushes us in two directions that at times can seem opposed, but I think they're so important to be linked. A devotion to Jesus results in two things. First, it's a deep drive to pursue Jesus. A deep drive to pursue Jesus in holiness. So notice there's no like spot in here where it says Jesus goes, Forget the Sabbath. Don't worry about it. Just kind of generally love people and figure life out. You haven't read much of the Gospels if that's what you're thinking. So read Mark. Walk through it as you continue to read and look at there. You are impressed with the sense that, wow, Jesus lived different. Wow. As you read how we're to apply those things, as Paul writes later to the churches of application of how to live, there's a holiness. There's a, there's a set apartness. There's a way that we live in relationship to one another that values humans in, in a way that maybe culture doesn't at times. There's a, there's a responsibility we have for care. There's a holiness, a pursuit of God that, that radically impacts our behaviors that is a part of a devoted heart to Jesus. And here's where the Pharisees probably would have nodded like, sure, 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 and then missed the next one. 
removal of legalism. At times, when we pursue a holiness, it can cause in us this sense of, I'm farther down this road than you are, or you, or you, or, well, I showed up on time, you didn't. I don't miss as many Sundays as you do. And suddenly we start like somehow thinking we earn things. That's where the Pharisees were at. But we don't earn anything. Everything we have in Christ, as a devoted follower of Christ, is a recognition that it's by grace. And so, following Jesus is about recognizing that incredible grace that's been given to us. When we don't deserve it, we can step into relationship with our Heavenly Father. And in fact, effort, working on our holiness, effort is not opposed to grace, but earning is. We don't earn anything. And so we see flee immorality. We see the effort that's put in, but but it's always with this sense of removing of legalism that when we see hurt and sin show up in other people's life, instead of going, well, at least I'm not like that, it's more of my heart is broken for where you're at. How can I come alongside? How can I care for it? My heart breaks for you to go, do you not realize what you're doing to yourself? You need, you need Jesus. And so you see in Jesus' life as he walks and he interacts with people, there are many times where he finds himself in rooms and scenarios and hanging out with people that if we're honest with ourselves. Some of us might have a hard time sitting across the table from and having a conversation. Because sometimes we, we read the New Testament letters and just kind of think of like rose-colored glasses, like, oh, the nice fishermen and everybody with him. Like, we think those are nice Sunday school class. Have you been on a construction site? Have you been out fishing with people? Like, it doesn't take long before you realize it's speaking a different language with shorter words than you might be normally used to in church. And Jesus was fully comfortable hanging out and talking, interacting with people while fully pursuing holiness, removing legalism. As a devoted heart pursuing Christ, may we land in that spot. May we land in that spot. Because our devotion to Jesus should mark us rather than simply the rules we follow. Our devotion to Jesus should mark us rather than the rules we follow. That when your neighbors think of you, when the people you interact with at work, when the places you go to school, they're not primarily thinking, oh, you're the one that doesn't do that, but it's a sense of, oh, yeah, you're that Jesus person. Or as the Church of Antioch became to be known as, the first place that was called Christians because it simply meant Christ-like as a slang term. Oh, you Christ-like people. Why, thank you. (laughs) Our devotion to Jesus should mark us far more than simply the rules and regulations we follow. So the issue at hand is specifically in Sabbath. So how are we to observe the Sabbath, right? How do we do it mindful of all that? How do we come back to observing the Sabbath? I think there's a a few things that are helpful to keep in mind. It says a day of rest from the rhythm of providing for our household. And I use that language intentionally. It's a rhythm of rest after taking six days to provide for a household. Because I realize it doesn't just mean those that vocationally work. There's all different scenarios, right? Whether it's a dual-income household, whether it's a single-income household, whether you're full-time at home, whether you're single, whether you're dating, whether you're married, whether you're filling whatever the, the unique exception you feel like you are in that space, you have, all of us in this space, a rhythm of life and what the creation order shows us is that there is, there is a six-day labor and effort that, that creates a provision for a household that is then where to pause. So I believe a Sabbath, as we look at that, 
is when we take a pause in our week to acknowledge rest for joy and refreshment, reminding ourselves of the holiness of God on that day. So what is your, what is your rhythm of the week? Is there a spot in your week where you have your effort for your household and there's a rhythm where it pauses? You gather here. You gather in other places to go. I'm gonna acknowledge God in my time. And acknowledge God in my time. It's a, it's a holy day that our time shows a dependence or a celebration of Jesus. Just as, just as tithe recognizes in our finances, there's a dependence on Christ. A Sabbath recognizes in our, in, our, in our days that there's a dependence within our week on our Heavenly Father. And so we celebrate, we take time aside to do that on a regular basis. And then lastly, as, as you're thinking, okay, how, how do we observe the Sabbath in mind? So what does that specifically mean, Nick? If, do I have to you know, always, if I'm not here on Sunday, make sure I take a Monday. Or if I don't do a Monday, I can do a half day here and a half day. Okay, like, how, how does this work out? Let me remind you, <laughs> it is a gift from God. If it is a burden and it feels a weight of legalism, remind yourselves the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. So is it, is it a gift? And maybe it takes times and there's seasons but God as sovereign creator has woven into the fabric of humanity recognizing this need for rest on a regular basis. So how do we work that into our schedule and realize that's a gift of our heavenly father for us? Because our devotion to Jesus first and foremost should mark us more than any of those rules and regulations that we try to follow. Because out of that devotion then comes that holiness and that pursuit of Christ. Well, let me pray for us, and I'm gonna invite teams gonna lead us in worship and response and song. So let's pray. God, I am so grateful for your word, the fact that we can walk through and, and be encouraged as we look at, look at all these different passages together. God, I thank you for your generous gifts that you do not seek to burden us with regulations, but rather know us, you know us so much better than we know ourselves and you weave into the rhythm of our weeks a Sabbath rest. God, would we in, would we in all areas of our lives be marked by devotion, by devotion to you, that we would pursue holiness, that, that we'd reject, reject legalism and, and we would rest knowing you are sovereign. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.